Okay, session two, the return of the Lord. In the last session, we discussed the fact that the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the establishment of his kingdom, is the central focus, the pole star of hope and expectation of every prophet and every apostle, the consistent message of hope throughout the entire Bible. And now we're going to look at the actual return of the Lord. We're going to really just touch on a, a fairly brief survey of passages throughout the Old Testament and throughout the Bible that speak of the return of the Lord. But before we do that, what I want to do is lay down a very basic overview of how to approach the Bible in order to understand biblical prophecy. So when we, when we come to this book and we want to you just have a basic methodology, what's a simple way that we can pass on to everyone how to understand these things without giving them a big you know, seminary lesson, uh, I want to walk just through a handful of rules, and I think they're easy enough for everyone to understand in just very simple terms that we can all uh, utilize in, in, in our approach, try to understand what is this book telling us with regard to the return of Christ, with regard to biblical prophecy. So the first rule is this. When we open this book, we, we want to understand what it says about the end times. You do not begin with the book of Revelation. You don't turn to the last book first. Instead, you begin with what comes first. So, uh, you know, first things first. Very simple. You begin with the Old Testament. You begin with the foundation. In simple terms, the book of Revelation, an incredibly significant prophetic book, is a book that oozes and drips with citations and direct quotations and references and more subtle echoes of just numerous passages throughout the Old Testament. The book of Revelation is really the grand symphony, the grand crescendo of the entire Bible. But in order to understand the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we need to understand the foundation that is built on. We need to understand these various Old Testament passages that the book of Revelation finds its sources in. So again, we begin with what comes first. We begin with the foundation. Very simple. Rule number two is we want to begin with the passages that are easy to understand and literal. Uh, again, very simple rule. We don't begin with the passages that are difficult or confusing. We begin with the passages that are easy to understand and literal. We don't begin with the passages that are highly allegorical, highly apocalyptic, or deeply you know, poetic, or difficult, or overly symbolic, difficult to uh, interpret, or passages that are highly debatable or are widely debated. Again, we want to begin with the passages that are easy to understand, that are literal and clear. Very simple rule. Rule number three, we want to begin with that which is consistent. And again, this is very simple. We begin with themes that are repeated and consistently presented throughout the scriptures. So we take note of themes as they appear over and over and over and again. And we recognize the fact that the Lord is emphasizing these things for a reason. He repeats them for emphasis. We don't base our theory on select passages while ignoring others. We want to adhere to the full counsel of Scripture. Just as a random example, many years ago when I first became a believer and uh, you know, all of my hedonist friends didn't want anything to do with me anymore, I used to go, I'm from South Boston, I used to go into Boston on the weekends and walk around with my little pocket New Testament and share the gospel. Well, Boston is a city filled with various cultic groups and I ran into a particular group. It was a 
cultic version, an offshoot of the Church of Christ. It was called the Boston Church of Christ. And what they taught specifically, based on one verse, one verse in Peter, which says that baptism now saves you. And so based on this one verse, they said that if you are not baptized, you're going to hell. It's just that simple, that it is the actual act of baptism, the actual act of being dunked in water that saves you because the Bible says baptism now saves you. Now, again, I was a new believer, but what I did is I opened the Bible and from from the beginning of the book, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, I pulled out 72 verses which clearly state that we are saved by faith. And so as we come to, you know, just as an example, we come to this, we go, okay, 72 verses that say we're saved by an inward reality. Faith in our heart is what saves us. And then one verse that says baptism now saves you. How do you deal with that? Well, obviously the 72 have much uh, heavier weight than the one. And so, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the picture uh, of the guy, you know, he's making his way up to the baptism just as I am. And, you know, come on up there, Brother Joel. Take the microphone and testify before you get in the tank. And, you know, he steps in the tank and he grabs the microphone and, zzz, zzz, you know, he gets electrocuted and he, and he dies. You know, oh, poor Brother Joel. He was so close. You know, he was so close, but he didn't make it. He's, he's now in hell forever. You know, this is literally what was taught based on this one verse. This is a perfect example of taking one verse and trying to develop a theology to the uh, neglect of the wealth of other scriptures. And the fact of the matter is, is that, yes, baptism does save you. It is the, it is the act. Uh, it is the first act of obedience after you have faith in your heart. But if you don't make it into the actual baptismal tank, of course, it's the faith in your heart that saves you. And these things can be reconciled. So is it with biblical prophecy. You do not base your prophetic ideas on select, unique passages. You don't look at one verse and develop a whole theology. We need to pay attention to the wealth of scriptures that are consistent, the repeated themes, again, the full counsel of scripture. Rule number four, this is, this is very important. You do not base your theory on your own worldview and circumstances. And for those that are desiring to give themselves to the Middle East or just to, you know, the Islamic world, this, this really is kind of a no-brainer. But unfortunately, in the West, and probably most specifically in the United States, there's almost this idea, because Americans are so American-centric or egocentric, almost the idea that the Bible was written for Americans. And it's very difficult for an American to come to terms with the fact that this book is not primarily speaking about them. And in biblical prophecy, it's not primarily talking about America. Rather, we need to take into consideration the consistent Middle Eastern, Israel-centric context of the Bible and most specifically biblical prophecy. The Bible was not primarily written for Americans. It was not primarily written for Westerners. It is a Middle Eastern book with a Middle Eastern emphasis, mindset, and worldview. We need to take into consideration the Jerusalem, Israel, and Middle Eastern centricity of biblical prophecy. As an example, if you're in Jerusalem today, 
the primary anti-Christ spirit that surrounds you several hundred miles in every direction, the anti-Semitic, anti-Christ, anti-Yahwistic spirit that desires to take your life if you're a faithful follower of Jesus or if you're a, a faithful Jew, the, the spirit that desires to destroy you is Islam. However, here in the United States, the primary, let's say, anti-Christ spirit that we contend with are the various isms. The humanisms, New Ageism, postmodernism, intellectual atheism, all of these various isms, none of which really agree, except they all agree on the fact that they hate the Bible, they hate biblical faith, they, they can't stand Christians in the Christian worldview. But the fact of the matter is, is we need to be very careful as we look out into the world and discern all of these isms and the, the Antichrist spirit that's coming against, let's say, our children as they are coming up through the schools or in the universities and the professors are are really coming hard at us with all of the isms. And we discern these anti-Christ spirits, the spirit of the age. We discern that this is in conflict with the spirit of God. This is not uh, you know, truth. It is not the container of truth. We need to be careful not to read our worldview into these prophecies in the, pro- the pages of the Bible and assume that just because the primary anti-Christ spirits that we're contending with to assume that because we're contending with them that that's what the Bible is talking about. No, the Bible is Jerusalem, Israel, and Middle Eastern centric, and thus we need to always take these things into consideration, the context of the Bible. You know, if you're a realtor, the saying is uh, location, location, location. Anybody that was a good Sunday school student or has been to seminary knows that the first rule that we need to establish when interpreting biblical passages is context 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 the middle east is the larger context of the bible rule number five again this is for westerners we are not to approach the bible as if it is a technical manual uh you know in simple terms this is a book which is filled with all sorts of various literature we have uh, historical narrative we have ancient Near Eastern prophetic poetry. We have apocalyptic literature. We have all sorts of different types of literature. We have psalms. And each one of those various types of literature needs to be interpreted according to the type of literature that it is. But this Bible is not a Honda fix-it manual. And oftentimes as Westerners, we come to a passage and we say, okay, verses 1 through 6 is dealing with the historical fulfillment, and then verses 7 through 10 is dealing with the future. And as Westerners, we like to really uh, dissect the Bible in very neat categories. Unfortunately, because the Bible is often, the passages that we're looking at often are ancient Near Eastern prophetic poetry, what happens with this type of literature is they'll take the historical and the future and they'll just mix them all together. And it drives Westerners crazy, but that is the nature of the type of literature that we're dealing with. And we need to acknowledge that layered, dual fulfillment that is so common throughout the prophetic scriptures. Rule number six, and this really piggybacks off of rule number five, we need to recognize thus the three primary emphases of biblical prophecy. So the first immediate context is the immediate historical context. So say we're looking at the prophecies of Joel. Joel was speaking to the immediate context of his time in his day, as well as the near future. He was prophesying regarding the near future and warning the, the Jews, the, the, the people of Israel, to return to the Lord, to stay faithful 
He was warning them regarding the coming Babylonian invasion. But again, uh, Joel was prophesying through those events pointing to the Messiah. All biblical prophecy is fundamentally day of the Lord, Messiah-centric. It is Christ-centric. So all of the prophets are speaking first to their immediate historical context, and then they are pointing through those things to the coming of the Lord, and then the coming of the Lord is broken up between His first coming and His second coming. And so these three uh, comprise the three primary emphases of biblical prophecy. The immediate historical context, and then the the coming of the Lord, which is often broken up between the first coming and the second coming. And just an example, this is just, we could look at dozens of passages. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, and I've chopped it up a little bit, but for, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now put yourself in the, in the shoes of your average uh, Jew. He's looking at these passages. He says, okay, here's a prophecy. It's a prophecy regarding a child. He's born, unto us a son is given. What does he do? The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So they look at it and they say, okay, a child is born. What does he do? He is a governmental leader. He is a ruler. And we as Christians, we say, well, wait a minute. There's a 2,000-year gap in this passage. And they say, where? I don't see it. And here's just an example where the Bible has taken the first coming of Jesus as well as his second coming and those things that he will do. And in one, just one broad overview, in one uh, you know, brief passage, we have the intermingling of his first and second coming, his birth as well as his rule, with no mention that there's a 2,000-year gap in between. This is the nature often of biblical prophetic poetry. And we need to recognize this and be careful not to try to impose the Enlightenment, uh, educated Western mentality into the pages of the Bible and demand that it conforms to our Western way of thinking because oftentimes it doesn't. Rule number seven, we need to understand that when God Almighty is portrayed as being physically present on the earth, When we see examples throughout the Old Testament, when God himself is on the earth, this is not God the Father. This is God the Son. These are pre-incarnate appearances of God the Son. God the Father is in heaven. He is transcendent. He lives in unapproachable light. John uh, chapter 1 verse 18 in the Gospel of John, he says this, No one has ever seen God except or but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. In other words, what what is he saying? He's saying the Father, God is in heaven. He's transcendent. No one has seen him. He lives in unapproachable light. However, God the Son, the one and only, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side reveals him to mankind. So when we see passages, again, throughout the Old Testament, where God is on the earth and he's engaged in battle, He is present on the earth. This is either a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son, or it is a reference to the coming of the Messiah. When Jesus, God the Son, will be on the earth actually engaged in battle. Revelation 19, uh, the rider on the horse burst forth from heaven 
It says in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And we're going to look at some of those passages as we move on. But we need to recognize that when we see God Almighty, it can call him the Lord, Yahweh, it can call him God Almighty, God of hosts. When he's on the earth, present, manifest among mankind, this is God the Son. God the Son is that aspect, that dimension of God that reveals himself to mankind, that comes down. He is the man-befriending God, the self-revealing God. That is what we mean when we say God the Son. Here's an example. Zechariah 14, verse 1 through 3. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to battle. Now take note of this theme because we're going to look at this, this, this theme in numerous other passages. The gathering of the nations against Jerusalem. Skipping forward. Then the Lord, Yahweh, will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. You see, God Almighty, it says Yahweh, the Lord, will actually go and fight against the nations that gather against Jerusalem. Well, is this just allegorical or is it literal? In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Again, it's literal. There will be a man on the earth that the Bible calls Yahweh. This is Jesus. This is a picture of the return of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it calls him Yahweh. We should take note of that. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, his name, the only one. That is the sacred name, Yahweh Vavheh. Rule number eight, we must understand the essence of the day of the Lord. The essence of the day of the Lord. If there is one thing that we could zero in on and say this is the very essence of the day of the Lord, it is this. It is the day of justice. It is the day of justice. And I call it the great reversal. And what I mean by that is this. Is that throughout the earth you have individuals, mankind, it's the nature of fallen mankind that are trying to put themselves at the top of the pyramid. You know, whether it be the... the uh, ambitious CEOs or the, uh, the, the, the power-hungry uh, uh, religious leaders, and we've all met one before, certainly not all religious leaders, but there's definitely those sort of those ego-driven, ambitious leaders. They put themselves at the top of the pyramid. They want to build themselves a kingdom here and now. And then you have God Almighty. Although He was God Almighty, Creator of all things, Creator of everything, he put himself at the bottom of the pyramid. He made himself a servant of us all, even to the point of embracing death on a cross. And he calls us to have in ourselves that same attitude. Philippians 3. Have in yourselves the same attitude of Christ, who although he was God, he made himself a servant, even embracing death on a cross. This is the attitude he wants us to have. Throughout the earth, you have the oppressed, the forgotten, the needy, the, the victimized, the sick. They're at the bottom of the pyramid. They're at the bottom of, they're at the back of the line of mankind's existence. At the day of the Lord, these pyramids are flipped. The, the righteous oppressed are put at the top and they're given charge over leadership duties and over cities and responsibilities. And those that have built for themselves kingdoms, those that have fought to put themselves over everyone, that have exalted themselves in this age, will be humbled and humiliated and many cast into the lake of fire. That is the essence of the day of the Lord. We're going to just skim through and look at a handful of verses. Isaiah 2, verse 11 and 13. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty 
For all that is exalted, they will be humbled. They will be humiliated. Isaiah 11, with righteousness, he will judge the poor. He will decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Isaiah 29, verse 19, the afflicted will increase their gladness in the Lord. The needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. Ezekiel 34, I will seek the lost, the scattered. I will bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong, I will destroy and feed them with judgment. Now, he's not speaking about the overweight. He's speaking about the, uh, the proverbial fat cats. Again, those that have exalted themselves, that have lived high uh, on, on the, the backs of the oppressed. Micah 4, verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts. Zephaniah 3, again, I will save the lame. I will gather those that were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. Psalm 72, he will have compassion on the poor, the needy. The lives of the needy he will save. Do you see the repeated emphasis over and over? It's the lame, the poor, the forgotten, the needy, the sick, the afflicted, the oppressed. This is the essence of the day of the Lord. When he comes, he finally has compassion. He finally pours out his judgment and justice will be served. This is the essence of the day of the Lord. Psalm 110, we mentioned this in passing in the last session. Yahweh says to my Lord, Jesus referenced this with regard to uh, the Pharisees and he said, how could David say that the Lord says to my Lord if he was merely his son? He was using this as an apologetic for the fact that he was and Jesus was the Messiah. He was using this verse as an apologetic to prove that point. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. So the Lord will extend the scepter of Jesus from Zion. The Lord will give it to His Son to rule the earth from Jerusalem, from Zion. And then get this. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. When Jesus comes back, Psalm 110, verses 4-6, through it says, He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Again, the unrighteous rulers, those that have put themselves at the top, will be cast into the lake of fire, personally judged by Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus that is rarely discussed and preached on in the churches. You know, we love the, the, the gentle shepherd who carries the lamb over his shoulders, and that is certainly one incredibly valid and legitimate aspect and facet of who Jesus is. But there is also the just judge that returns to crush kings throughout the earth, that Jesus will kill unrighteous politicians throughout the earth and replace them with righteous leaders. And then those at the bottom, those that have found themselves at the back of the line of humanity will be moved to the forefront. I uh, am friends with a ministry that works at uh, helping young girls get out of the sex slave trade. And I helped them uh, build a museum a uh, awareness center for their ministry and they brought in some uh, artifacts they brought in some relics from a uh, a brothel as it's called from Cambodia now I have daughters and uh, one of them right now is six these uh, one of the artifacts that they had was a pair of pajamas from a little girl 
from this brothel um, from a five-year-old girl. And they were soaked with blood. When we discuss the harshness of the day of the Lord, a lot of Christians, they hear these things and they say, whoa, 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 I think this is a little extreme. When you put it in the context of the oppressed of the earth, these things make absolute sense and they resonate with the cry for justice that is moving throughout the earth today in His church. The Lord is awakening His church to His cry for justice. And there is a day where if that little girl will give her heart to the Lord in sensitivity and, and, and soften her heart and just hold on to Him, the day will come when she will be beautified. She will be completely healed. She will be exalted and given charge over ten cities. And the unrepentant men that did that to her will be crushed and cast into the lake of fire. That is the essence of the day of the Lord. And there needs to be a place in our hearts that rejoices in these things. So again... The central focus of God's heart for justice, the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the sick, the lonely, the captive, the oppressed, the victimized, the rejected, the lame, the lost. These things are consistent throughout the Scriptures over and over and over and again. Repeated themes. And now comes the next most important point that if we are to be individuals that seek to be evangelists or missionaries to the Islamic world to reach out to the Muslim community, we need to take note of the fact And not ignore the fact that among that list, consistently throughout the Scriptures, is the nation and the people of Israel. Side by side, throughout the Bible, throughout the prophets, in the context and at the time of the return of the Messiah, among the poor, the needy, the afflicted, the forgotten, the lonely, is the people of Israel. And we're going to take note of some of these passages because one of the most difficult things, and and I... You know, early on, again, when I was a young believer, I fell in love with Muslims. Is as a, a Westerner, as an American, I wanted to share my faith with different Americans. As soon as you mention Jesus or God or the Bible, the walls go up. They say, "I don't want to talk to this guy. He has bad vibes. You know, he's he's got he's got a contentious spirit. I I, I don't want you to force your religion down my." You just say, "I'm just trying to have a conversation, trying to engage you." The walls would go up. But then I met Muslims. And as soon as you mention God or Jesus or the Bible, they are happy to engage you. They're happy to sit down with you. And the thing, the reason that I fell in love with Muslims is you can sit down and you can, uh, particularly Middle Eastern Muslims, and you can argue, you know, Middle Eastern culture, you can wave your hands, get some spit on each other's face and do it for hours and sip tea and disagree. But at the end of the day, they'll say, okay, my friend, let's do it again tomorrow. You know, there's no offense. You can come right back and do it again. And I love that about Muslim people. However, there is one issue that you cannot discuss, and that is the nation of Israel. That is the line in the sand. And if you stand for Israel, you will have crossed a line and broken that relationship. And as those, again, that desire to be missionaries or evangelists to the Islamic world, we need to set ourselves solid and firm and stand with the Lord. Where does the Lord stand? And say, I will not compromise on this issue. If this is an issue that is central on the heart of God, then this is not an issue I will compromise on. And I have seen and witnessed throughout the, Mus- the community of those that are reaching Muslims that it is often the issue of Israel that is often compromised on. And if we want to be people of the Bible, we need to pay attention, we need to study, take a look at what the Bible says about these things, and then align our position and our hearts with uh, these scriptures. So now that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at 
really a, a, a survey of passages that speak of the return of the Messiah. And as we do this, as we pointed out earlier, we want to take note of the repeated themes and pull out some of these things. We begin with Genesis 3. This is called often by theologians the Proto-Evangelium, which simply means the first gospel. Genesis 3, verse 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then it shifts to the, to the personal pronoun. And again, this is how it was quoted uh, later in the New Testament as well as in the Septuagint. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So we all know the story. You had the, the Garden of Eden. You had the fall in the Garden of Eden. And then immediately after the fall, immediately after sin entered into the picture, immediately the Lord begins to introduce His promised plan of redemption for all of His creation. Immediately He begins to speak of the Messiah, the seed, the seed of the woman that would bring redemption and healing and restore things back to the way they were in the garden, yea, even better. Right there, the Lord begins to introduce these things. And so what the Lord says to Eve is He says, look, I will put enmity between you, literally, uh, Satan, the serpent, this, this entity, this individual that the Bible calls the serpent. I will put enmity between the serpent and Eve, between the woman, as well as between your offspring and hers. So really between the, the children of Satan and the children of righteousness. There will be enmity between them down throughout history. And then it goes to the he. Again, just in brief kernel form, in seed form, you have the he. He will crush your head and you will merely bruise his heel. He will bruise your head while you will merely bruise his heel. You have the introduction of the Messiah that at the end of the age will crush the head of Satan. He will crush death. He will crush sin. All of these things. And Satan will merely have the opportunity to strike at his heel. The contrast is intended to be clear there. Now, we move on to Numbers 24. This is the story of Balaam and Balak. Now, Balak was the Midianite king. He was the king of the Midianites. And Balaam was the false prophet of Baal. He was also a Midianite prophet. I say false prophet. He was the pagan prophet of Baal, a Midianite uh, pagan prophet. Now, Balaam and Balak are standing up on this high overlook on this this high overlook, and they're looking down at the Hebrew peoples who had come up out of Egypt, and they're now encamped in the valley below according to their tribes in in, uh, this beautiful arrangement. And Balak is paying Balaam to curse the Hebrew peoples. He believes that if a curse is pronounced on them, that it it will take effect, and the Hebrew peoples will suffer the results of this. But what happens is instead of cursing the Hebrews, Balaam begins to prophesy according to the Spirit of God. And he looks down at the Hebrews, and this is what he says. He begins and he says, And now behold, I will advise you. He says to Balak, I will advise you what this people, that's the Hebrews, will do to your people, that's the Midianites, in the last days, in the end times. The phrase there in the Hebrew is akariath yom. It means literally the end times. And then he says this, he begins to make what is one of the clearest, earliest messianic prophecies of the scriptures. This pagan prophet begins to make one of the clearest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. 
a star will come up out of Jacob. A scepter, that's the rod of authority, will rise out of Israel. And so here you have the introduction again. The, the initial uh, fulfillment was David, King David, but yea, even more so, pointing to the Messiah, the son of David. And what does the Messiah do here? Of all of the things that the Holy Spirit could have inspired, he will die on the cross for the sins of his people. He will do this, he will do that. No, it says he will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the sons of Sheph. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. On the other hand, Israel will go strong. Now here's what we as faithful Bereans, those that are faithful students of the Bible most often do, is we read a passage like this and we say, okay, he will crush the foreheads of Moab. I don't know who that is, some Old Testament guy. Moving on. The skulls of all the sons of Sheth. You know, we just, we don't look them up. It's essential that we look these names up and understand what they mean. Because here the Lord is speaking of the fact that the Messiah, in the context of his return, will judge a people, the Moabites, the sons of Sheth, Edom. And here again, you have the crushing, the Messiah crushing the heads of the sons of unrighteousness. And so who is it speaking of when it says what these people will do to your people, the Midianites, the Moabites, the Edomites? What does it mean, the sons of Sheth? Well, when we look at the Bible dictionaries and the various uh, references, what these are referring to are the peoples that historically lived to the southeast of Israel, in the uh, southwest of modern-day Jordan, as well as extending all the way down the coast of Arabia. The Midianites lived in the area from modern-day Jordan all the way down the west coast of Saudi Arabia. These were the Edomites, the Moabites. These are all really synonyms. And it says, according to Numbers 24, that when the Messiah returns, he is crushing the heads of individuals called the Moabites, the Edomites, the Midianites. So now here's the question. There's, a, there's really a spectrum, a range of how we can interpret these things. Uh, on one side, you have the hyper-literalists that will say, well, Jesus is literally going to destroy the physical bloodline descendants of the Edomites, of the Moabites, and it needs to be very specifically, you know, ancestry, eth ethnic, and so forth. And then on the other side, you have the allegorists that would say, well... This is just speaking of the general end-time enemies of the people of God. And essentially, they, they allegorize these things into oblivion and in, into meaninglessness to where they really don't mean anything. And I would argue that somewhere in the middle, there is a place to say that when the Lord comes back, He will judge the spiritual and physical descendants of the ancient Moabites, the Edomites, the Midianites, those that at the end of the age carry with them that same anti-Semitic spirit that was, that was born by the Edomites and the Moabites, those that have that same ancient hatred of the people of God, those peoples, those eastern peoples that were constantly giving trouble to the Hebrew peoples throughout biblical history, that in the last days, those that carry that same spirit and perhaps even that bear a, a certain physical ancestry will be among the primary recipients of the judgment of the Messiah when he returns. We need to take these things into consideration. Or let me just rephrase it this way, because what I'm uh, beginning to articulate is something called the Islamic 
eschatological paradigm. I call it the Islamic eschatological paradigm. You could also simply say the Islamic end time theory, which is simply to say this, that the Antichrist, his religion and his empire will come out of the Islamic world. In fact, that his religion will be Islam as opposed to the European paradigm, the European eschatological paradigm, which has been the primary paradigm in the church over the past 30, 40 years, or, or really down throughout history, which would be the, the uh, Roman eschatological paradigm, which is to say that the Antichrist, his empire, and his religion will come out of a revived Roman empire. Again, the predominant paradigm with regard to the end times down throughout church history. And so with that question on the table, as we're looking at this passage, is it more reasonable to conclude that when Jesus returns, he will judge, again, the modern-day spiritual and physical descendants of the ancient Edomites who have that same anti-Semitic spirit, or is it more responsible of a hermeneutic to conclude that when God says Moab and Edom, what he really is speaking about is Italy and France? And, and that sounds foolish when it's laid out, but in fact, that is what many of the prophecy books and teachers that we listen to have, have been telling us, that the primary uh, location that the Antichrist will come from is Italy or Rome or out of Europe or in the popular Left Behind series that it will be, the Antichrist will be Nicolae Carpathia from Romania. We're going to continue to look at passages to see where the Lord is pointing us and what is he is saying uh, with regard to these things. Isaiah 25. Now, most of us have been to a funeral where there was a passage read from the book of Revelation that spoke of the time when the Lord would wipe away tears from all faces, when death and mourning would be a thing of the past. Well, this is the actual passage that the book of Re Revelation got it from. Isaiah 25, verse 8 through 10. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. What is the context here? What is the timing context? It is the context at the end of the age, when death and tears and these things are no more. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Who, In the context of this passage, his people are the Jews, the nation of Israel. The Lord has spoken. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Now the picture that's being presented here is at the end of the age, in the context of the timing of the return of the Messiah, the Lord is portrayed here, again, in poetic form. Zion, figuratively portrayed as, as an individual, Mount Zion, the kingdom of Zion, is kneeling before him, and the Lord's hand of blessing is resting on Zion, and he is blessing Zion. And then it says this, but Moab will be trampled under him as straw is trampled down in the manure. So once again... The peoples that are defined as the enemies of God, the children of the serpent, once again are crushed under the foot of the Messiah. And this time, he's, he's got his foot on the back of their neck and he's rubbing their face down into the manure. And he's crushing their head into the dung. With his hand, he's blessing Zion. At the end of the age, the same picture is revealed once more. Micah 5, this is the passage regarding the Bethlehem-born Messiah. Again, one of the clearest and most uh, well-known messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So here you have the prophecy regarding the Messiah, the ruler that would come from Bethlehem. And then skipping forward a few verses, what does it say he will do? He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And then what does he do? He will deliver us from the Assyrian when the Assyrian invades our land and marches into our borders. So here is the Bethlehem-born Messiah. And it says that when he comes, one of the things he will do is deliver a very specific piece of land with very specific borders, Israel, from an individual the Bible calls the Assyrian. It's referring to here, this reference to the Assyrian is the Antichrist. All of the earliest writings of the uh, church all referred to the Assyrian clearly uh, as the Antichrist. It's simply another name for the Antichrist. It calls him the Assyrian. And it says that the Messiah will deliver Israel from the individual known as the Assyrian. Now again, if we are to be responsible students of the Bible, taking note of these repeated common themes, then is it more reasonable to conclude that because the, the Antichrist is called the Assyrian, that he will probably, at the very least, come from within the borders of the ancient Assyrian Empire? Or is it more biblically responsible to conclude, as I said earlier, that he will be Nikolai Carpathia from Romania? Or that he will be Prince Charles from England? Which, which uh, position or which paradigm does the Bible seem to be pointing us to? Now, we all know the quintessential picture. The book of Revelation, Revelation 19, the rider on the horse bursts forth from heaven. The armies of heaven are following him. We all know this passage, but very few people are aware of the fact that this passage finds its origins in Isaiah 63. That that, that, that picture comes from Isaiah 63. And when I ask people, I say, okay, Revelation 19, Jesus returns. His robes are soaked in blood. Whose blood is it? Oftentimes people say, well, it's his own blood. Other times people say it's the blood of the martyrs, the faithful martyrs. His, his robes are soaked with the blood of the martyrs. Well, the answer is found in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? And then the Lord responds, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like one of those treading the winepress? I have treaded the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them down in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered all of my garments and I stained all my clothing. Why? Why? Has the Lord trampled his enemies? Why are his robes soaked with the blood of his enemies as he is emerging up out of Edom, out of Arabia, making his way up to Jerusalem? Why are his robes soaked with blood in Isaiah 63? For the year of my redemption has come. I'm sorry. The day of vengeance was in my heart. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And the year of my redemption has finally come. That which all the prophets have been pointing to, waiting, yearning for, has finally come. The day of vengeance, the year of my redemption. Amos 9, 
verse 12. This is speaking of the remnant of Edom. Again, those reaching out to the Islamic community should be aware of these passages. Speaking of the day of the Lord. Speaking of the context of the establishment of the kingdom. The return of the Messiah. It says this. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which had fallen down. And I will repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. The kingdom of Israel will be rebuilt under the headship of Jesus, under the headship of the Messiah. And then it says that they may possess the remnant of Edom. So in that day, there will be a remnant. There will be survivors from among Edom. There will be that remnant from out of the Islamic world. And it says that Israel will possess them. What does it mean, possess them? And then it follows up, all the Gentiles that are called by my name. In other words, those from among the Islamic world, from among Edom, that give themselves to the Messiah, that gives themselves to the righteous King of Israel, as well as all the Gentiles that are called by my name, they will be essentially the possession of Israel. In other words, they will join themselves with the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord who does this thing. Isaiah 60, verses 2 through 4. But the Lord will arise over you. Again, in the context of His return. The Lord will be seen over you in the sky. His glory will be seen upon you. Then the Gentile shall come to your light. In the context of the establishment of the kingdom in the kingdom age, the Gentiles, the nations, will come to Israel and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you foreigners will rebuild your walls their kings will serve you your gates jerusalem will always be open and they will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations their kings led in triumphal procession those that survive the survivors from among the nations that are judged will come and give their wealth to the king of israel and declare that in fact there is a god in israel this is a picture of the literal physical kingdom of god of the messiah And then it continues, verse 11, 12, and 14. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. Now get this. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. The children, the sons of those nations which were bound and determined to destroy the Jewish nation, in the context of the kingdom of God, the sons will come. And they will bow to you. And those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34 is really a sister passage that goes with Isaiah 63. The picture of the Messiah emerging up out of Edom. Emerging out of Edom. And it says this, Come near you nations and listen. Pay attention. You who you dwellers of the earth and hear, and all that is in it, the Lord's wrath essentially is coming. He will destroy them. He will give them to the slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. It's using the imagery of a slaughter. For the, the sword of the Lord has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat. The blood of lambs and goats. Kidneys of rams. For the Lord has 
a great slaughter in Basra. What is Basra? Basra, again, is a synonym for Edom, for Moab. He has a great slaughter in Edom. The wild oxen will fall with them, the calves, the great bulls. Their land will be drenched with blood. Why? Why is the Lord destroying the children of Edom, the, these, these people filled with the anti-Semitic spirit? And then it says this, and take note of this. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution to uphold Zion's legal cause to uphold the controversy for the controversy of zion some translations say in the context of the return of the messiah one of the most repeated and emphasized issues is that the lord comes back to vindicate his people israel and one of the dirty little secrets of the muslim background believer is that you have many muslims that come to faith and then they're discipled in churches which embrace uh replacement theology and as such, they are allowed to maintain often their anti-Semitic and deeply anti-Israel ideas, the culture that is often found, you know, even among, sadly to say, even among many of the Arab Christians, this anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic spirit. And yet, biblically speaking, the Lord comes back, and this is one of the most central issues on His heart, and it's essential that as we lead Muslims to faith, as we lead them to Christ, that we fully disciple them. And that this issue of Israel is not an issue that will be one of compromise. That if the Lord comes back and this is a burning issue on His heart, then it would be an issue that burns on our heart. And it is not an issue that we would budge on. And that we would say, yes, the Lord... Now, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, of course, they're not perfectly righteous. But yet, this is, this, He takes a very political position. The Lord takes a very political position and he is standing with them against the hatred, against the anti-Semitism at the end of the age. And we're going to continue to look at verses that emphasize this fact. Joel 3, again, the gathering of the nations. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. Why is the Lord entering into judgment? Again, concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. Why? They scattered up my people among the nations. They divided my land. And then he says this, Now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? What is he talking about? He's talking about Lebanon. He's talking about Gaza. Lebanon and the Palestinian territories. Now, does that mean the Lord's going to come back and kill all Lebanese and Palestinians? No, of course not. Just think here, Hezbollah and uh, Hamas. And he says this, Are you repaying me for something I have done? Notice how the Lord identifies with His people. He says, If you are paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads all that you have done. That's Joel 3, verses uh, 2 and 4. In the context of the gathering of the nations against Jerusalem, the Lord is upset because the peoples divided Israel and they scattered the people among the nations. The implications for this are profound. The implications of the Islamic eschatological paradigm are profound. The centrality, when the Lord names names of the Islamic nations repeatedly in the context of passages that speak of the return of the Messiah. The nations that he's actually on earth engaged in battle against. The implications for missionaries to the Islamic world, how we relate to Israel and Zionism are profound. 
The Israel issue is always the first line of compromise. And this is not only among missionaries, but among societies. And whenever that issue is compromised, it always results in, in it's a slippery slope that ends up in all sorts of intolerance and eventually bloodshed. In 2007, there was an evangelical statement concerning Israel and Palestine, and it was signed by over 80 very prominent evangelical leaders, professors and presidents of major, well-known evangelical seminaries, pastors of megachurches, well-known names. And these over 80 evangelical leaders signed a statement saying, calling on President Bush at the time, saying, we support a two-state solution and saying we as evangelicals call on president bush to divide up the land of israel to push for the two-state solution and then their reason was this they said because we fear that if if we do not do this that israel and the united states will experience a significant increase in terrorism and that the jews as well as americans will pay dearly if we do not do this thing now in light of just some of the verses and we could go on and on and on. We've just done a brief survey. We've looked at a brief survey of passages that speak of the return of the Messiah. And we've seen how the Lord, over and over and again, He emphasizes this issue of Israel increasingly becoming the Jew among the nations. There have been more resolutions of condemnation against the nation of Israel in the UN than every other nation combined. If you take all of the uh, resolutions of condemnation, far more than half have been leveled against this one nation of Israel. Does that sound objective? Does that sound fair? And so this statement uh, concerning Palestine by these evangelical leaders calling on President Bush to divide up the land and then saying that we fear that if you don't do this, that Israel and America will see an increase in terrorism. Were these men, these so-called leaders of the church, were they functioning according to the spirit of the age or according to the spirit of the Bible, according to the spirit of this book? Were they functioning according to the fear of the Lord or were they functioning according to the fear of terrorism? And I would argue that they've embraced a false theological structure which allows them to take a position which is 180 degrees in complete conflict with the Lord's heart on this issue. And if we're to go to the Islamic world, we need to be ready to give ourselves in loving, uh, pouring ourselves out for the Islamic community. But that, that we, we, we cannot compromise on this issue. It is a central issue on the Lord's heart, and we need to stand with the Lord's heart on this issue as well. Amen.